Hello and welcome to episode 64, pay-per-view, where I review the newspapers and big headlines over the week in place of vets and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. Pay-per-view, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Podcasts, and now streaming on the iconic media platform. You may notice that I've still got problems in the teeth department, so my speech is not 100% yet, but it's going to be that way for a couple of weeks, So, but I've tried my best. So the first subject this week is Brexit. This is in the sun. Brexit's finally been delivered, and now it's time for Britain to heal its bitter division. The sun rose today on a new Britain. We at this sun know what sort of Britain we want. For many people, our independence, hard won and finally delivered, feels liberating and exhilarating, even if nothing tangible has yet changed. For others, this is a day to mourn, but the Brexit argument has been settled by two decisive national votes. The conditions are right to put the division and rancor behind us, for our united kingdom to be truly united. That will mean leavers respecting and understanding their opponent's sorrow, a tall order perhaps, given the vitriol they have endured, but essential. It will mean the more extreme remainers ending the abuse and resisting the temptation to seize triumphantly on any setbacks that now arise. Indeed, it would be better to let the very terms leavers and remainers fall into irrelevance and disuse. Ours is a great country, of course, but one with substantial problems in a deep economic divide. The new freedoms over our laws, money, borders and trade and our powerful new government can be catalysts for a vibrant, energetic, prosperous and more harmonious new era where wealth and opportunity are spread more evenly across the country. It can be achieved by everyone coming together, by all of us getting behind Britain. That, of course, includes the millions of EU migrants who have made their lives here, make a vital contribution and must never misconstrue Brexit as a vote against them. Well, this is the point, isn't it? A lot of Leave voters were told they were racist and that's why they voted to leave when the truth is a lot of people were sick of open borders, not because of racism, but because you can't let people into a country ongoing. I talk about migration in episode 45 as well as other episodes. People who point that out are called racist. And people who say that don't realise that it's people who say that in part that caused Brexit. People were sick of being told what they should think and self-appointed spokespeople telling them what they do think. It was a chance for people to make a stand against that, and they did. The article continues, Our island nation was simply never a good fit for the EU. We will be better off outside it, and the 27 other nations may well be too without our opposition holding them back. But it is vital during the issue of standstill transition period that they grasp what Brexit actually means. The omens for a trade deal look poor. The EU is living in the past, issuing bleak threats as if it is still dealing with the faint-hearted Theresa May government and a country racked with self-doubt. It acts as if Boris Johnson can even now negate Brexit by locking us into EU rules and ECJ judgments in allowing unfettered access to our fishing waters. But everything changed at the moment of his victory. His government has a huge mandate and will sign the barest of free trade deals or none, rather than sacrifice any sovereignty. Unless Brussels comes to terms with that, months of talks will be wasted. Well, the more sovereignty you sacrifice, the less you're looking at a true Brexit. We will remain an integral part of the continent of Europe, physically and culturally. We can be the EU's strongest friend as well as its neighbour. But if our two sides can't forge a trade deal, it will, it will be because of a monumental failure by the EU to recognise the new reality. Boris is determined to extract us entirely from Brussels' reach. If the EU think he's bluffing, it's mistaken. Well, that seems to be the case so far, and we'll have to wait and see how plays out on that subject another article here this is in the telegraph post-brexit britain may face friction but it will be a worthwhile trade-off 
to have finally left the EU is momentous, and for those of us who campaigned for it, like me, <laughs> this is cause for celebration. Yet I doubt whether many of you noticed any difference in your lives over the weekend, and I am quite sure that this will continue to be the case over the coming months. This most certainly does not mean that Brexit is a non-event. Many of the major issues affecting Britain's economy and our relationship with the EU are still to be addressed. As I have always argued, Brexit is no magic wand. It offers us some choices and opportunities, but we have to do the right thing, including standing up to continue bullying by the EU. Well, the point about Brexit not being a non-event is absolutely correct, and it's incredible from my observations to see how many people don't understand how important Brexit was and is ongoing over the course of this year with the negotiations. It wasn't the single biggest democratic mandate in British history for no reason. The article continues, the fishing industry will I think be the litmus test. Apparently Brussels is going to try to secure continued full access to British waters by trading this off against access to EU markets for the UK's financial services industry. The fishing industry may be pretty insignificant economically and especially in comparison to financial services, yet it is enormous political importance. It was sold out by Edward Heath, then Prime Minister, at the last moment during the negotiations that took Britain into the EU in 1973. And fishing is of particular significance in Scotland. The SNP wants to keep Scotland in the EU. If we sell out the fishing industry again, this will be seen as a massive betrayal, especially in Scotland. As for the financial services industry, that is a different kettle of fish, as it were. The EU needs the City of London as much, if not more, than the city needs the EU. If the EU makes things difficult for British financial services firms, then it will be cutting off its nose to spite its face. Meanwhile, the city will thrive, as it always has done, selling services, including new ones based on fintech around the world. In many ways, it is December the 31st that will be the big date, for that will mark the end of the transition period that we have negotiated with the EU. If we haven't secured a free trade arrangement, if we have not secured a free trade agreement by that date, then tariffs will be imposed on trade between the EU and ourselves. Even if we have reached some sort of trade deal with the EU, Brussels warns that unless we agree to abide by EU standards, then British exports will encounter significant frictions when crossing the border with the EU. This threat is meant to force the government into accepting regulatory alignment with the EU, as well as caving in on such issues as the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. So far, the government is talking a good talk. It should stand firm, but its determination to do so would depend largely upon how seriously it takes the threat of frictions emerging in UK-EU trade. It will be bombarded with the lobbying from big businesses arguing that frictions are to be avoided at all costs. Their warnings and pleadings should be taken with a barrel of salt. Unlike tariffs, which are eminently quantifiable and in the case of the EU are mostly pretty small anyway, frictions are nebulous. But there is telling evidence that Friction should impose only a minor burden on UK-EU trade. Large countries like the United States as well as umpteen smaller countries export large amounts into the EU without the benefit of trade deal or special access. Moreover, the rate of increase of exports into the EU from countries outside it has exceeded the rate of increase of exports from the EU members to other EU members. And it is noteworthy that the absence of frictions on trade between EU members has hardly led to an economic bonanza for the EU. On the contrary, by and large, the countries of the EU have recently been struggling. Why, you may ask, is Italy not enjoying a boom on the back of frictionless trade with the rest of the EU? Could the answer be that, in the wider scheme of all the factors that affect a country's prosperity, trade frictions don't amount to all that much? Moreover, UK ports have said that the difference in handling procedures and handling times between goods moving between EU member countries and those moving between the EU and non-members is minimal to non-existent. So although December the 31st will be a key date, whether or not we have reached a trade deal with the EU, I don't think that it would amount to any sort of cliff edge. If I am right, you may well think that at that point any remaining pessimists would give up and admit they'd been wrong about Brexit, but I doubt it. They will move on to another battlefield. 
I suspect they will say that all along the dangers posed by Brexit were long term. They will argue that decisions not to invest in Britain will only show up over a run of years. So at the beginning of 2021, it will be too soon to throw in the towel. And if after several years the UK economy is doing pretty well and is showing no obvious sign of Brexit harm, they will then say that it was the fiscal stimulus or tax cuts or burst of deregulation or some such factor that offset an onerous effect from Brexit. Onerous meaning a task or responsibility involving a great deal of effort or difficulty heavy obligations. The Irish Prime Minister has said that we must now get used to being a small country, yet the UK is the world's sixth largest economy, larger than Brazil, Canada, Russia and a host of other countries that you might think quite big economically. It is interesting that none of these countries has thought that in order to trade with the world they need to give up their sovereignty. Getting used to being a country rather like them, only bigger and with global influence, seems to me to be relatively easy. Here's an interesting article on the subject of the negotiations, which will be over the course of this year. This is in Daily Mail. Boris Johnson's EU ultimatum. PM vows to give no more concessions after becoming privately infuriated at Brussels' attempts to frustrate a comprehensive free trade deal. Boris Johnson has cracked up the states ahead of post-Brexit showdowns with the EU by warning he will walk away from any trade deal which does not meet its red lines. The Prime Minister is understood to be furious with Brussels, who he believes have pivoted from wanting to forge a deep trading relationship to now insisting on regulatory alignment. Noises from the continent in the days before Britain left the bloc signalled the EU's eagerness to keep the UK bound by its rule book in the oversight of the European Court of Justice. Mr Johnson, who was already given a cast-iron pledge to end alignment, is understood to be incandescent with this changing of the terms agreed in the joint political declaration. In a strategy which can spook Brussels into giving ground and rethinking their demands, Downing Street will express it as no longer only planning for a Canada-style deal. Instead, the privately infuriated PM will also explore the possibility of pursuing a looser relationship with the EU where not all tariffs will be wiped out. A government source said there are only two likely outcomes in negotiation, a free trade deal like Canada or a looser arrangement like Australia, and we are happy to pursue both. In a flash of steel, Mr Johnson will use a speech in London to tell the EU he will accept no alignment, no jurisdiction of the European courts, and no concessions to any Brussels demands. It sets up a spectacular showdown between Whitehall and EU trade negotiators when crunch talks kick off in March. Brokering Canada-style a free trade agreement is still the PM's main objective, but if Brussels wrangling scuppers this, it is prepared to walk away with what is dubbed an Australia-style arrangement, a rebranding of a New Deal Brexit. It would see the UK revert to World Trade Organization rules with additional mini-deals tacked on to ensure travel arrangements such as international flights can continue. European leaders have already set out their own warnings to Mr Johnson over the upcoming talks. French President... French President Emmanuel Macron this week said the level of single market access granted to the UK would depend on the degree to which the European Union's rules are accepted. Another area of trouble could be Gibraltar, with Spain reportedly laying down a gauntlet to EU negotiators over the terms of any deal in the offing. According to the Observer, the EU will back Spain over its territorial claims to the British Overseas Territory by giving Madrid the power to exclude its population of 34,000 people from any potential trade deal. The PM was also expected, according to government sources, to confirm UK negotiators will pursue free trade arrangements with the likes of the United States, Japan, Australia and New Zealand at the same time as dealing with Brussels. The Sunday Telegraph reported that a trade deal is earmarked to be agreed with Japan by Christmas, followed by more agreements with Australia and New Zealand in mid-2021. On top of the tough stats on trade, the Sunday Times reported that British diplomats have been ordered to make a break with their former EU allies in a bid to adopt a stance as a confident independent country. According to a leaked telegram quoted by the paper, 
Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab said the UK should be free to disapply EU foreign policy positions during the 11th month transition period as Britain prepares to move away from the bloc. Well, I'm delighted that Brexit has happened, as anyone who's listened to pay-per-view for any length of time will. I'm sure I'll not be surprised to hear. Britain now has a chance to reclaim its sovereignty and decision-making, which is essential if you want to live in any kind of free society. People said to me over this last three years that they didn't understand what it was all about, and one even said that it was all a load of fuss over nothing. Another person said that this was not the only chance Britain would ever have of leaving the EU, and we could leave whenever we wanted. And another, who I was told at one point is really aware of the truth of world affairs, well not from what I can see, conversations I've had with them, actually said that the elite were the only ones who stood to gain anything from Brexit. It's incredible the level of ignorance of some people in regards to Brexit. And these people said these things because they were clearly clueless of the way society is really controlled and by whom, and the agenda behind the European Union, which is, as I've said since pay-per-view began, for unions in different parts of the world, European Union, the African Union, American Union to be evolved out of NAFTA, a free trade zone, just like Britain with the common market. Just good for jobs and trade, when all along it was known the common market would end up becoming the EU it is today. An Asia-Pacific Union, etc. And these unions will be the vehicle through which the world government dictates to the former countries which plan to be broken up into regions of smart cities with vast areas of land designated not to be populated. This is where... The depopulation agenda comes in, as I've said many times. Private housing is planned to be replaced by flats under total 24-7 surveillance and technological control via AI, which people will live in at the behest of the authorities. So that's the structure of the society in which the European Union is planned to play a central part in well within the next 10 years or so. The world government would dictate even the finest detail of people's lives, and we've seen this with the European Union where even the shape of fruit was dictated at one point. I remember that one. And small business owners have noticed the extent of fine detail dictated from the European Union. And one of the reasons for that is the idea is to get rid of small business. The plan is for just giant corporations to exist in the world planned by the cult which controls society, which I talk about in an episode called All Roads Lead to Israel, Part 1. The world government dictating to Europe in this way through the European Union. Brexit was a momentous, historic moment, most of all because it was a great example of the power people have, if only they'd realise it and exercise it. The political class and establishment figures, they tried scaring us, they tried preaching to us, they tried lying to us, they tried to get another vote, they tried to get another deal, again and again, Theresa May, they tried parliamentary rejection, and the people rejected all that and when we said leave we meant leave and now Britain has officially left the European Union. You might have guessed I'm quite happy about that. (laughs) We're in a time now where people are starting to realise the power they have and Brexit I think was a real paradigm shift to show people that we're the real power not those who we give away our power to every day. Politics has seen the rise of populism in recent years, which I talk about in episode 34. And politics is starting to finally reflect the will of the people instead of the people believing that they have to follow the will of politics. Brexit is a great opportunity for people to realise that if they can make such a momentous, historic difference over Brexit, they can do it with anything. And if people can grasp this opportunity to apply the same pressure over other subject areas, then we can really start to make a change.
I'm not saying that politics is the ultimate answer because it's not designed to be, but it can be much more reflective of the will of the people if we take stock from Brexit and apply it to other areas of society. The next subject this week is coronavirus, also one of the biggest stories of the week. This is in the Washington Post. Get a grip, America. The flu is a much bigger threat than coronavirus for now. And grip is spelt G-R-I-P-P-E, which is an old-fashioned term for the flu influenza. The rapidly spreading virus is close schools in Knoxville, Tennessee. Cut blood donations to dangerous levels in Cleveland and prompted limits on hospital visitors in Wilson, N.C., North Carolina. More ominously, it has infected as many as 26 million people in the United States, just four months killing up to 25,000 so far. In other words, a difficult but not extraordinary flu season in the United States, the kind most people shrug off each winter or handle with rest, fluids and pain relievers if they contract the illness. Pain relievers. I've talked about pharmaceutical medicine in episode 17 and episode 44 part 2. But this year, a new coronavirus from China has focused attention on diseases that can sweep through an entire population, rattling the public despite the current magnitude of the threat. Clearly, the flu poses the bigger and more pressing peril. A handful of cases of the new respiratory illness have been reported in the United States, none of them fatal or apparently even life-threatening. Anything that we don't feel we have sufficient information about feels like a threat, said Lynn Bufka, Senior Director of Practice Research and Policy at the American Psychological Association and an expert on anxiety. The flu doesn't feel novel. Most people's experience with flu is they've had it, they've recovered, it's not a big deal, despite the fact that thousands of people die every year. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 8.6 million to 12 million people have visited healthcare providers complaining of influenza-like symptoms such as fever, coughing, sneezing and aches since the flu season began, October the 1st. As many as 310,000 have been hospitalised and 68 children have died. On the CDC's map of flu activity, most of the nation is a deep red, indicating the highest level of influenza-like illness activity. The entire school district serving Knoxville and Knox County, Tennessee, which has 57,800 students, shut down this past week because of flu circulating among students and staff. In Cuyahoga County, Ohio, which includes Cleveland, 218 people have died and 2,500 have shown up in emergency rooms in the city alone, said Merle Gordon, director of the city's Department of Public Health. In Arkansas, nine school districts are closed. 33 people have died and hospitalizations have increased sharply in the past two weeks. We're being hit right now. A lot of communities at the same time, said Jennifer Dileha, Medical Director for Immunizations and Outbreak Response for the Arkansas Department of Health. More than 173 million doses of flu vaccine have been administered to date, much less than needed to cover the nation. During the 2018-2019 flu season, the latest with complete data available, 45.3% of adults and 62.6% of children received flu shots, according to the CDC. Two types of flu are circulating, increasing risk. They seem to be producing fewer fatalities among older people who typically comprise most of the deaths during flu season. But they are hitting children hard. The current season does not appear to be as severe as 2017-2018 when the flu reached epidemic proportions and as many as 95,000 people died according to CDC estimates. But no amount of flu can mitigate public fear and interest in the new coronavirus which is spreading inexorably out of China where it has killed more than 200 people and infected more than 11,000. I would say there's good interest in both, Dela has said. I think people are a little bit panicked about coronavirus and want to know what steps to take, think that it's circulating in the state. So far it isn't, she said.
Anytime someone asks about the flu, they talk about coronavirus. And anytime they talk coronavirus, they talk about the flu, she said. That's a good point because how do you define the difference between the flu and coronavirus, symptom-wise? Anthony S. Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and a member of the government task force coordinating the response to the coronavirus, said he is often asked why the government is focusing on coronavirus when so many are dying of seasonal influenza. Exactly. So many more people die of the flu each year than at least have from coronavirus so far. I often get asked, he says, we have an influenza outbreak here, we have about 8,000 deaths already, 100,000 hospitalizations, why are we paying such attention to coronavirus? The reason is, despite the morbidity and mortality with influenza, there's a certainty of seasonal flu. I can tell you as we get into March and April, the cases are going to go down. The article continues, until officials can offer that kind of certainty about the coronavirus, even if it does not seem as dangerous as the flu, anxiety levels will not decline, Bufka said. While public health officials are urging hand-washing, staying home when sick and keeping a distance from obviously your people, Bufka suggests a different calculation for mental health. You see, the recommendations for how to deal with coronavirus are exactly the same as the recommendations for how to deal with flu. When she counsels anxious clients, they try to get a good assessment of what is actually the risk, she said. How likely is it and try to distinguish between possibility and probability. Sure, it's possible there will be more cases in the US. It's probable there will be more cases in the US. But it's not likely to be the person standing next to me in the grocery store. Well, it's interesting that the vaccines for these pandemics, or so-called pandemics, are always available right on cue. And how could they be if the pandemics are supposed to be a spontaneous occurrence? Interestingly, a simulation of the coronavirus spreading was run three months before and was supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Bill Gates supports and funds basically everything the cult's agenda desires, including vaccines. The simulation was also supported by the World Economic Forum in Davos, where front people where front people for the cult in politics, business and banking meet up and coordinate the cult's financial policy under the guise of finding solutions to world economic situations. If these kind of characters are supporting anything, we need to ask questions about it. Simulations are often run before major events. In pay-per-view, in print, the pay-per-view book, which will be available soon, I list simulations and examples of obvious prior knowledge of terrorist events. Patent for a live, attenuated, reduced in impact, basically. Coronavirus was applied for in 2015. And you can find that patent by going on to Google Patents, patents patents.google.com, and typing in US 101307-01B2. And the abstract says... Basically, the short explanation. The present invention provides a live, attenuated coronavirus comprising a variant replicase gene encoding polyproteins comprising a mutation in one or more of Neustadt. And it goes on to all the scientific stuff. But, but basically, it's very similar to the coronavirus, but it's the idea that using this would, in a vaccine, help to combat coronavirus, the full-scale coronavirus. The present invention relates to an attenuated coronavirus comprising a variant replicase gene, which causes the virus to have reduced pathogenicity. The present invention also relates to the use of such a coronavirus in a vaccine to prevent and or treat a disease. So that's the intention behind it. But even 
a weakened form, basically, was available that had been invented in 2015. That's the point. Interestingly, if you may remember the Zika virus back in 2015, 2016, that was when we, especially in America, people heard about it. That was when there was a big outbreak, apparently. It had actually been around since 1947 without causing alarm. And here's an article in the Daily Mail talking about the coronavirus. And it says, Chinese coronavirus may have been lurking in animals for decades before adapting to infect humans, leading experts says a medical outbreak. The new Chinese coronavirus, which has killed six people, may have been lurking in animals for decades, leading experts said. Sir Jeremy Farrar, a renowned specialist in infectious disease epidemics, said the virus is not new, but it's likely adapted to infect humans. Officials say the never-before-seen infection emerged from an animal source, much like the deadly SARS, HIV and Ebola viruses. Authorities have pointed the blame on food markets in Wuhan, the Chinese city at the centre of the outbreak the scientists are scrambling to contain. This was published on... 21st of January, updated on the 25th. Rodents and bats, among other animals, are slaughtered and sold in traditional wet markets which tourists flock to see the real side of the country. Viruses, including ones carried by animals, are constantly changing and may over time become strong enough to infect humans. People who touch infected animal bodily fluids, such as saliva, are at risk of such viruses. However, it is not exactly clear how the new coronavirus started or is transmitted yet. Sir Jeremy, director of the UK-based global health charity welcome told mail online this is absolutely not a brand new virus this will have been circulating in animals in china and maybe other parts of asia probably for years if not decades he added that it probably had not had an effect on humans until now or caused such mild infections that no one was bothered about it but sir jeremy said something changed claiming the virus may have adapted to animals or mutated to become infectious to humans officials in china Officials in China confirmed yesterday that the virus, which has still not been named but is nicknamed NCOV, can spread between humans. Cases of the pneumonia causing virus have been spotted across China, South Korea, Thailand, Japan, and Taiwan. A total of 325 people have caught the virus across. A total of 325 people have caught the virus across Asia, a six-fold increase in a few days. Those infected include 20 healthcare workers. Suspected cases have sprung up in Australia, North Korea, and Philippines in recent days. About a mysterious pneumonia case's first left medics baffled at the end of December in Wuhan, a Chinese city with a population of 11 million. Huanan Wholesale Seafood Market was shut for tests, with the majority of infected patients having worked or visited there. It has been shut since January the 1st, so Jeremy said animal markets are a real source of infection. He added, it's a seafood market, but it also had animals being sold, from domestic chickens and ducks to all sorts of other animals. The mixing of animals in an animal market has been a very common way that these infections have come about. Sometimes these viruses can adapt to humans, replicate and cause human infections. Pointing at HIV and Ebola, Sir Jeremy said many, many infections in humans that we know of today actually originated in animals. SARS, the deadly virus which started in southern China and killed more than 700 people in the early 2000s, came out of a similar market. And Avian flu, another zootonic disease which can infect humans, can be spread from live birds sold at markets or poultry farms. Wet markets often sell live animals, many of which are illegal or exotic. The vast number of species allows the virus to adapt. Mr. Farrar said animals mixing allows the virus to be in lots of different hosts which allows it to adapt to those animals. The virus can then come across to humans who buy and sell at the market.
Professor Paul Hunter, an infectious diseases expert at the University of East Anglia, said the coronavirus almost certainly came from animals. He said people in China are in closer contact with wild animals than those in Western societies because their diet is so varied. With China particularly, there was a closer link to animals and what sorts of animals people consume, Professor Hunter said. When people go to the market to buy chicken for the week, it's often alive when you buy it. People butcher the animals themselves at home or in the street. The article continues. Infected animals may shed the virus in their saliva, mucus and feces which humans may come into contact with. They may inhale droplets of the virus from the air or physically touch an infected animal. Scientists are still trying to work out how the new Chinese virus attacks its host and how deadly it is. China's National Health Commission revealed the unnamed infection is spread from the lungs and may travel in saliva such as through coughs. And then it goes on to talk about the virus spreading and how it can be passed on, but it may have been around for decades. So it's not a brand new outbreak in that sense. So when someone's infected, are they really infected in a epidemic, pandemic kind of way, or are they just carrying virus in them, which up until recently has never caused a problem? Certainly not on a wide scale anyway, at least. And the city of Wuhan is well known for pollution, serious pollution, and there were protests about it last year. And, of course, China is well known for being an authoritarian, dictatorial regime, and that's the model they want for the West. If you want to see the West tomorrow, look at China today. So when there is protest in China, you know it's a serious issue, because lots of people don't take to the streets in such a regime unless there really is a reason to do so. So what about if instead of coronavirus symptoms, it's general flu-like symptoms and or symptoms of the reaction to pollution? And many people can be registered as a case of coronavirus when they're merely presenting symptoms of the flu. And these cases then get factored into the overhyped statistics these many people are affected well well how are they infected and are they infected with coronavirus or is it the flu is it a reaction to pollution but of course the media doesn't ask those questions and it doesn't therefore give us answers to those questions it just repeats the narrative because that's what the media always does and here's an interesting article this is in the express and it's interesting that coach drivers varying quarantined coronavirus passengers were seen in photos to not be wearing masks. They were driving a coach load of quarantined passengers and what happened to them? I mean, how could they do that anyway? I mean, this reminds me of firemen at the scene of the Skripal incident not wearing protective clothing and of course pictures came out about this as well. Not wearing protective clothing while standing next to investigators who are and we were told that even the slightest amount of Novichok could be almost fatal, if not fatal. So, of course, one of the key questions is, why would this scenario be engineered into place anyway? And I'm not saying it is, but it's always worth asking the question, if it is, why would it be? We have to always ask the question, with any of these official narratives, who benefits? Who benefits from people believing this? Well, certainly the pharmaceutical cartel do. And one reason is to justify vaccines, especially compulsory vaccinations. 
which are nothing more than excuses to inject toxic chemicals and ingredients into the body. I talk about vaccines pay-per-view in print. I've got a whole chapter on health in the book. And I explain why there's such a push for people to get vaccinated. And it's not about health. And it's more than wealth. There's another reason why. And I explain what that is in pay-per-view in print. And that other reason is the main reason. Because money is never the real main reason why anything's done. The agenda, the cult's agenda, is everything. And what benefits the agenda always trumps what benefits people. People are irrelevant. That's why I keep saying society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. What drives society, the direction of society, what happens in society, is driven by the agenda, not what's best for people. And more than that, the agenda is to suppress people in ways I explain in the book. One of the key ingredients in the vaccines will almost certainly be nanotechnology, which is a fundamental part of the cult technology agenda, which I also have a chapter about and write about extensively in pay-per-view in print. Vaccines mutate human DNA, and I explain why the cult want to do this in the book and are doing it. Depopulation would obviously be an effect of a global pandemic if it was real, albeit engineered into place. And there's a very clear reason why the cult desire depopulation, which plays into the technological agenda. Another cult agenda goal is the potential, if a pandemic was bad enough, for so-called international cooperation, which in truth would be, because it always is, international control and justification for creating, in effect, a police state under the guise of protection. The cult controlling global society don't care about the global population. They only care about suppressing, manipulating and controlling the global population. And anything which will achieve that, they will try. They don't care how they achieve it and they don't care what form it takes. People go on about communism or socialism or this or that movement. They don't care what form the control takes. They just want the control for the sake of control for the sake of control. Structure and the format and the means are relevant to them. Whatever works. I don't want to jump to conclusions and say the coronavirus is definitely real or definitely engineered into place or definitely propaganda, like some do in the alternative media, because it's too early to tell, although there are questions to ask. Certainly it's possible that one day it will be a real serious global pandemic, and this will have a few benefits for the cult. One, it will help to discredit those in the alternative media who dismiss the pandemic as merely propaganda, and discrediting and censoring the alternative media has long been a goal of the cult, and is ever more so being achieved, not least through Silicon Valley, which the cult owns. And two, it will justify those changes in society I mentioned earlier. So we need to watch this with interest, but hold back on making definite statements, at least for now. The next subject this week is social media. This is hilarious, this, because it's just so ludicrous. Mark Zuckerberg, unfortunately, is true. Mark Zuckerberg declares Facebook is going to stand up for free expression and allow people to post what they want. But the CEO admits the new move will piss off a lot of people. These social media platforms are far from standing up for free speech or censoring massively in ways that I detail in episode 49. And they're doing it on behalf of the cult. Anyway, this is the article. This is in the Daily Mail. Mark Zuckerberg has declared that Facebook is going to stand up for free expression. 
I'll try that one again. Mark Zuckerberg has declared that Facebook is going to stand up for free expression. <laughs> <laughs> no, one more time. Mark Zuckerberg has declared that Facebook is going to stand up for free expression. <laughs> They're not going for it, are they? Okay, look, I get it. I know it's funny. I know it's ridiculous, but if you could just try to hold back your laughter. Mark Zuckerberg has declared that Facebook is going to stand up for free expression in spite of the fact it will piss off a lot of people. The controversial CEO, 35, made the claim during a fiery appearance at the Silicon Slopes Tech Summit in Utah on Friday. Zuckerberg told the audience that Facebook had previously tried to resist news that would be branded as too offensive, but says he now believes he is being asked to partake in excessive censorship. Now, doing it for so long. Increasingly, we're going to call to censor a lot of different kinds of content that makes me really uncomfortable, he claimed. We're going to take down the content that's really harmful, but the line needs to be held at some point. See, this is the classic. I believe in freedom of speech, but there's always a but. Which means that you don't really believe in freedom of speech at all. You, there's no shades of grey when it comes to this particular issue. E- either you support freedom of speech or you don't. The Facebook founder went on to, and social media giants definitely don't because of that which controls them which I detail in pay-per-view in print. The Facebook founder went on to bemoan, it kind of feels like the list of things that you're not allowed to say socially keeps on growing, and I'm not really okay with that. Well, why is your platform, which you are only the frontman for, censoring on a historic scale, then? He then declared, this is the new approach, and I think it's going to piss off a lot of people. But frankly, the old approach is pissing off a lot of people too, so let's try something different. Well, it certainly was not pissing off your masters, Mr. Zuckerberg. KSL5TV shared the entirety of Zuckerberg's speech on its own Facebook page. Zuckerberg has been in the hot seat in recent months for refusing to ban political ads from Facebook, despite the fat fellow social media giant Twitter declared that they would stop sharing political advertisements. The irony here is, of course, that the cult which controls military intelligence, which owns Silicon Valley, controlled from Israel. Israel is massively more influential in American politics than any political ads on Facebook, as I explained in episode 62 when I talked about the massive elite Zionist history of Trump and the network surrounding him in politics and elite Zionism is controlled by the cult. The article continues. The tech guru has also stated that Facebook will not fact-check political ads resulting in a highly publicized showdown on Capitol Hill with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the very epitome of the woke fake liberal left mentality which has taken over the Democratic Party. Meanwhile, Zuckerberg's defiant appearance at the Utah Tech Summit came after Facebook disappointed Wall Street's expectations of fourth quarter growth earlier this week. The results revealed on Wednesday raised concerns that Facebook's days of astronomical growth were firmly in the rearview mirror and shares of the world's biggest social network dropped 7.2% in extended trading. Facebook reported its slowest ever revenue growth for the fourth quarter at 25%. Elsewhere on Wednesday, the company pledged better protections for Facebook users after the social media giant agreed to pay a $550 million settlement Wednesday over a lawsuit that claimed it illegally collected millions of users' biometric data without their consent. And where did that go? To the military intelligence network which controls Silicon Valley. It's self-controlled by the cult. Facebook did not admit wrongdoing in agreeing to the settlement which requires court approval. Zuckerberg has promised Facebook users privacy upgrades in light of the outcome of the suit as the founder seeks to address the ongoing privacy concerns that have dogged the social media company. And then on this subject of Facebook's going to be more open and more supportive of free speech. <laughs> okay. I did say hold in your laughter. I knew that wouldn't last. 
But following on from that article, there's this one. This is in the Telegraph. Posting anti-vaccine propaganda on social media can become criminal offence, law commissioner says. Posting anti-vaccine propaganda on social media could become a criminal offence, even if those promoting it believe the suedo science, the UK's new criminal law commissioner has said. If the pharmaceutical companies and, and the medical establishment is so confident of their stance on vaccines, what does it matter if other people are challenging that? Because the medical establishment will just be able to prove with fact and backed up information that what is being claimed is not true. And that's the end of it then. Instead, people are demonised, marginalised, and if this ends up happening, what this article talks about, they will be hit with a criminal sentence. Why? Why can't the medical establishment just provide the evidence and the information to prove alternative views are not true? And that's the end of it. In her first interview since taking up the role, Penny Lewis revealed she is considering whether law should be amended to lower the threshold of criminality for posting false information online that endangers lives. Well, how do we know it endangers lives? Because anyone trying to have an open public debate about it is shut down and demonised. It comes as a health secretary, Matt Hancock, said in September he was looking very seriously at making vaccines compulsory for state school pupils after the UK lost its official measles free country status due to a steady fall in MMR immunisation rates. Currently, people are protected from prosecution if they sincerely believe the misinformation they publish under laws designed more to tackle bomb hoaxes than internet health conspiracies. See, that's the thing, isn't it? Anything that the establishment says is true, the system knows best and is always right, anything else, by definition, cannot possibly be true. And my response to that is weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That was the official line at the time. Turned out to be a lie, and knowingly a lie, not least as a result of the Chilcot Inquiry. And I've talked before about how the education system is fundamentally structured as it is to create this mentality of, or this perception, that anything else outside of the official establishment line on anything cannot possibly be true and therefore doesn't even warrant being looked at. The article continues, speaking to the Sunday Telegraph, Professor Lewis said current legislation also meant people only face prosecution for publishing information with the purpose of causing annoyance, inconvenience or needless anxiety. Well, that is so vague and broad a definition that it can be used to encompass a wide range of online information, which is exactly the idea. However, she cited anti-vaccination posts and people advocating cancer patients treat themselves with the apricot extract late trial instead of chemotherapy as areas where lives could be endangered. Well, show the information to prove it's not true then. The former King's College professor said if their purpose is actually not to cause annoyance or anxiety, but they think they are doing the right thing by posting false information about a vaccine, for example, and instead there should be a recklessness-based fault element or even a lower criminal threshold. So where they've really not done their homework and they've been negligent in the way they've spread this false information or disseminated it. You see, thing is, if this was about, is it true, is it not true, and uh, then we'll go from there, that would be bad enough if you're going to take action. I don't think any anything should be, apart from criminal, real criminal information like inciting terrorism or something like that after it's been delivered by the way if you do it before then you're deciding what people can see and authority will always take advantage of that but certain things should be dealt with yes after they've been delivered but it's not about whether it's true or not it's not what this is the way this works is establishment true by definition 
anything else, regardless of how much evidence and information is produced to back up the claim, obviously rubbish. And that's how this will work. The quote goes on. I think we need to look into whether there is a role for criminal law in relation to false health information. However, Professor Lewis said that criminalization will be difficult to justify in cases where no malicious intent could be proved. Professor Lewis became one of the Law Commission's five commissioners last month and will lead its work drawing up reforms to modernize swathes in the UK's criminal law over her five-year term, starting a wide-ranging review of how Britain's communications laws function in the social media age. To date, over two-thirds of the independent statutory body's recommendations for government to amend or pass new legislation have been implemented wholly or in part. As part of the review, Professor Lewis said the Commission will be considering whether glorification of self-harm online should also be made a criminal offence. What you're going to see, it's already started now clearly, is calls as this plays out for more and more and more and more content to be suggested as should that be considered a criminal offence, should that be considered a criminal offence, should that be considered a criminal offence, until all that people can say, which is where this has all been going from the start as I've said, is that all people will ever see and hear is what the establishment wants them to see and hear. That's it. And social media, with its historic levels of censorship, has played a massive part in that. And that's one of the reasons why social media was invented. Because we live in a free society. I know we do, because they say we do. And they say it, so it can't be false, can it? The Law Commission is set to release its proposals on modernising communication laws for public consultation later this year. Professor Lewis will then draw up recommendations which will be signed off by four other law commissioners before going to the government. The 52-year-old comes to the task with a wealth of experience dealing with contentious legal cases in three different countries, and most of her work to date focusing on historic child sex abuse prosecutions and the medical ethics around assisted dying. Child sex abuse prosecutions. Well, obviously not in Westminster. Born and raised in Wembley, North London, Professor Lewis moved to Canada aged 11 with her family before going on to study maths at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. MIT. It was an optional introduction to the law module that ignited her interest in free speech issues. <laughs> and she then went on to study law as a postgraduate in Canada. She later qualified as a barrister and clerk for Mr. Justice Iacobucci on the Commonwealth Country Supreme Court before returning to the UK and taking a position at King's College London in 1995. Professor Lewis said her involvement with emotive issues such as euthanasia meant she keeps a low profile on social media herself, partly due to already receiving correspondence in her email inbox that she doesn't want to read. However, she said she, well, she doesn't want to read anything, does she? Clearly, that's outside of the official narrative. However, she said that she was also keenly aware of the way the disproportionate abuse women face online is hounding them off social media and silencing them. Well, it only will hound them off social media and silence them if they allow it to. Their choice. She said if victims are effectively forced offline by the behaviour of potential defendants. No, they're not forced. They've chosen to go offline because of the abuse. This is like when you see in a newspaper article or a media story this or that celebrity was forced to apologise for saying they weren't. They chose to apologise because they're worried about their image if they don't. She said, if victims are effectively forced offline by the behaviour of potential defendants, then their freedom of expression is being limited in a way that we should worry about. It's only being limited because they've chosen to limit it. Instead of the approach that I would take and I would recommend, which is, you say I can't say that, I'm going to say it more and I'm going to say it with more emphasis. And if you don't like it, tough. And tough is the family-friendly word. Fuck off works as well. One model the new law commissioner is looking at for modernising the UK's laws is New Zealand's approach of criminalising online messages 
based on the harm they cause, with harm largely defined as emotional distress. This is the new method of censorship, harm. That's the new word. You're going to see that used over and over again. And harm is so broad and so vaguely defined, again, intentionally, that it can be used to encompass a wide range of speech. She highlighted UK law around battery as comparative model whereby any unlawful physical conduct is classed as assault, but then penalties increase with the severity of actual or grievous bodily harm. Yet she warned such a system for social media abuse would have to be linked to defined criminal action so that lawful behaviour was not inadvertently criminalised by accusations of harm or offence. I was slightly worried that behaviour that may not be legal then becomes legal because the victim was harmed, said Professor Lewis. It's just another step on the road to outright censorship of anything, in any format, online or offline, that challenges anything, authority and establishment and government, etc. Say, because that's where we're going. And by the day, and ever more obviously, as it gets closer and closer to that goal. Claiming alternative information could destroy lives is another way of saying people can't be trusted to research and come to correct conclusions when a vast amount of people can. When people say, don't look at that information or this, it might be fake news or dangerous information in this case, they're just confirming they have no confidence in your intelligence and ability to discern credible, valid information from rubbish. Penny Lewis talks about mothers and social media users being hounded off social media when people are being censored and leaving social media because of that censorship for questioning and sharing information about vaccines on social media. It's interesting that the coronavirus scare is happening alongside this new proposal to make criticism and questioning online of vaccines or criminal offence because it can endanger lives apparently. At the same time, pharmaceutical companies and vaccine manufacturers can claim whatever they like and vaccine manufacturers have for decades now, since 1986, been granted immunity from prosecution as a result of the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. Note childhood. And the reason for this is because vaccines are said to be unavoidably unsafe, which means it's been admitted that vaccines are unsafe and that it's not least because of all the toxic ingredients in them. But even though that's the case, people challenging vaccines online are censored and it's being proposed by Professor Penny Lewis that it should be a criminal offence to point out that vaccines are unsafe when vaccine manufacturers are immune from prosecution because vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. And that situation only occurs in a tyranny masquerading as a free society, which is what we have. And this is where coming together once again, as with the first article today, about Brexit is so vital. Leaving aside all the labels and political affiliations and coming together and supporting each other in an effort to make a stand and make a difference because a few people can be picked off, dealt with easily. But when people come together as a collective, individual in terms of their own opinions and views and perceptions, but collectively together to make a difference, it's a different story then. And when we're told we can't criticize and question vaccinations, then we need to criticise and question vaccinations, but we need to do it collectively and support each other in doing so. Brexit was a great example of the power people have. In truth, we have far more power than even than that, and if we use it, then the game's up for the cult and their agenda. This is why the cult has to divide and rule. And we're seeing this now with people being given ever more labels to identify with and being encouraged ever more to identify with those labels and to therefore be divided from other labels that are 
apparently in conflict with them. We come together, the game's up. The last subject this week is France's left-wing elite are accused of cowardice for failing to support 16-year-old girl facing death threats after she insulted Islam online. France's left-wing elite have been accused of cowardice for failing to support a 16-year-old girl who has faced death threats after she insulted Islam online. The girl known as Mila said Islam is a shit religion and the Quran is full of hate in an outburst online after she repeatedly rebuffed Muslims' advances. She has been removed from her sixth form college in Lyon, southeast France, by police for her own safety and has faced a torrent of insults and threats to rape and kill her. The teenager's lawyer, Richard Malka, told the Times that her plight has been completely ignored by the left, which would usually leap to her defence. It is the left that traditionally defends secularism in this country, said it saddens me that it has not done so in this case. But the new left and the traditional left are not the same thing. As I explained in episode 36, the fake liberal left who claim to be liberal when they're acting as the opposite of liberals, and they're actually the foot soldiers of the establishment and for the cult. She has been stuck at home for two weeks without being able to go to school. She is only a teenager and the sky has fallen on her head. No human rights association has protested or expressed solidarity with the girl whose life has suddenly been plunged into hiding. He also accused ministers of being fearful of upsetting France's five million Muslim citizens, claiming their inaction amounted to a betrayal of values laid down by Voltaire, the 18th century champion of free speech. Mila told French publication Bellica how she feels the whole of France wants me dead after no one stood up for her following the attacks and as though she can no longer set foot in my high school and I can't even change my high school I am not racist not at all she continues you cannot be racist towards a religion I said what I thought you will not make me regret it there are still people who will get excited I clearly don't give a damn I say what I want what I think well done to her in the aggravating video uploaded to her Instagram profile adorned with LGBT flags Mila also says she hates all forms of religion she uses the profile to publish videos of herself singing her angry video also came out as she was told she had insulted our god Allah, the one and only, and that it was hoped she would burn in hell. Isn't it interesting that every religion believes their god is the only god, and invariably, some parts of the world more than others, but invariably, the dominant religion in your country is the one you're born into. As Ricky Gervais once said, isn't it interesting that you're always born as the right god? What's the chances of that? The article continues. The director of the French Council of Muslims, Abdullah Zekri, alleged Mila had reaped what she had sown earlier this week, but was forced into an embarrassing retraction following a public outcry. No, she chose to retract. The French Justice Minister, Nicole Bellabay, has also been criticised after she failed to come to the teenager's defence and instead accused her of breaching a legal concept that does not exist, freedom of conscience. When she was told that none exists in French law, Ms. Bellabay apologised for her words and professed they had been a mistake. The prosecutor's office in Vienne near Lyon is understood to be investigating the comments on Mila's profile in an attempt to identify the perpetrators. Well, many people confuse Islam with Wahhabism, a Saudi Arabian British Empire supported religion. Wahhabism is responsible for the terrorist events blamed on Islam, and the head chopping antics of ISIS are also expressions of Wahhabism. The cult controlling global society, infiltrated and inverted traditional Islam, and this led to Wahhabism, as I explain in All Roads Lead to Israel, Part 1. Wahhabism is a satanic distortion of traditional Islam. The public are led to believe that Islam and Wahhabism are the same in 
perceptual terms to suit the cult's agenda of ever-increasing surveillance and control to protect the public from terrorism and of increased invasions of countries in the Middle and Near East. Many people have never heard of Wahhabism. I explain in all roads lead to Israel how the British Empire were fundamentally responsible for creating Saudi Arabia. Paul Joseph Watson of Infowars talks sarcastically about Islam being the religion of peace and whenever there is a terrorist attack blamed on Islam, Wahhabism is the force behind it, but a terrorist attack that's blamed on Islam. He says, the religion of peace strikes again, when in truth it's Wahhabism that is the religion of war, because it's the creation of a cult for which hate, death and suffering is its very religion. The cult controlling world affairs loves death and suffering. It's a rush for them. Wherever you are in the world and however rich you are and however unaffected by what's happening to society you think you are, these are the people running your and your family's life, ladies and gentlemen. Given this background, is it any surprise that someone should face death threats for insulting Islam when it's very extreme Wahhabism is an inversion by a death-loving cult? Anyone or any group which is confident of their view does not seek to censor speech. Only those who don't have confidence in their view and or have something to hide, and those two often go together, seek to censor because they know in an open debate they'll lose the debate. No contest and they know that what's hidden will come out. Of course, in the context of this story, this girl was not so much questioning or challenging Islam as insulting Islam, the story says, and that's what got the believers' backs up. Religion is the greatest form of mind control because mind control is a manipulation of perception and on that criteria religion constitutes its greatest expression. Repetition is the most effective method of achieving mind control and religious followers are constantly repeating myths and mantras which underpins the manipulation of perception. I talk about religion in episode 41. Religion is also an exercise in dividing and ruling the population. Even within religions there is divide and rule, as with Sunni and Shia in the Arabic world. The reason the left did not help this girl is because of the political correctness hierarchy pyramid which I talk about in episode 15 in which I explain why I say that political correctness is the ultimate discrimination, ironically. Isn't it interesting when you look at it that religious followers talk about a loving God, believe they worship a loving God, and yet if you criticise or question their religion, the most extreme religious followers want you to burn in hell. When you look at it from this perspective, it's the followers who are closer to the personality type who you would think would be closer to going to hell than those who are criticising and questioning the religion. Because the imposers are fiercely trying to force another belief on someone else and they threaten and desire hell and damnation for anyone who does not subscribe and challenges the religion. When those challenging are merely challenging, criticising and questioning. In other words, surely an all-loving God would desire the latter over the former in heaven. It seems this is an impossible situation to change, but there are a few solutions to it. First of all, I said religion is the greatest form of mind control, and mind control in this context is merely the manipulation of perception, and can therefore be undone with a new perception. It's not easy, and it's not necessarily quick or likely with some people to say the least, but it can be undone. As Morpheus says in The Matrix, you have to let it all go, Neo. Fear, doubt, and disbelief free your mind. Morpheus also says, we have a rule. We never free a mind once it's reached a certain age. It's dangerous, the mind has trouble letting go. 
And that was a profound truth among many others from the Matrix trilogy. Because the older you are, the less likely you are to question your beliefs. But doing so collectively is necessary to unravel the cult's agenda for all humanity. And in that last sentence, or last part of the sentence, is another solution, the ultimate one. Realising that we're all in the gun sights of this cult's agenda, and therefore leaving religion, culture, creed, nationality, background, gender, income bracket, etc. all to one side and coming together behind what unites all of us, facing a nightmare society in which adults alive today in the society the global population already live in, in different countries, some more openly suppressed than other countries, but globally. But for the kids and grandkids alive today who are themselves already subject to more manipulation, suppression, surveillance and control than any other young generation in known human history. And that's nothing compared to what's coming if we don't come together, leave the irrelevant labels to one side and make an effort and make a difference. It's possible, it's just a choice, always has been, and the choice lies with us. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the contesting connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.